This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We have seen the reports about how China's economy is growing by leaps and bounds. We see the pictures of all sorts of construction projects going on, but it seems like many of those are being financed in the end by debt, and that should be a concern. But you also see projects that have been completed, which are also empty and just sitting there. There's also the concerns around shadow banking in the country and the influence it can have. Put it all together, and you could be looking at a very big bubble in the future. And if that bubble does burst, according to author Denny McMahon, when it does, the whole world is going to feel it. He has written a book looking at these problems titled China's Great Wall of Debt, Shadow Banks, Ghost Cities, Massive Loans, and the End of the Chinese Miracle. And it's a pleasure to have Denny joining us on the show right now. Denny, welcome. G'day, Dan. Great talking to you. Thank you, sir. Um, You've been covering this country for quite some time, so I I guess you have seen this this onset kind of coming on for a while now. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, I actually lived in China. The first year I lived in China was in 1997. And so from then until now, I mean, I've seen the country absolutely transform. And I'd say that for most of that time, that transformation has been an incredibly positive thing. I mean, the quality of people's lives have improved so much. Uh, The infrastructure, the quality of housing has, has really, you know, it's much better than it, than it was back in the 90s. But certainly over the last decade, there's kind of been this, I was going to say creeping, but it hasn't been creeping. It's been like a, a freight train, just the, the pace at which the debt has been piled on to build things like housing, public works and factories, which in and of itself, they all sound very positive things. But the extent to which they've been built, it, you've ended up with a massive amount of excess in waste. So with factories capable of producing far more steel, aluminium, ships than the Chinese economy could ever hope to use, or more housing in places, you know, an excess of housing in places that it's just not needed, and public works such as, you know, airports that might only receive one or two flights a, a, a week, you know, new highways that only have a handful of cars on them, these sorts of public works which, uh, you know, the, the local governments that borrowed to pay for them will be paying off the debt indefinitely because they just don't have the resources. What was it that, that really drove this in the first place? You know, the big thing was really the global financial crisis. Now, a lot of these tendencies were in place before then, but when the global financial crisis hit, there was a sudden drop in demand for China's exports. And the way that the Chinese government dealt with that is by uh, with, with a massive stimulus. But, yeah. you know, in other countries that also had a stimulus, the stimulus was usually done by the central government. In China, the way that differed was that it wasn't so much the central government that was spending money, it was the banks. And so you saw this massive expansion of credit by the banks. And then when the government tried to shut it down after a year, said, right, OK, that was enough stimulus, the economy's now on a, on a good footing – uh, the shadow banking system kicked in and you had this new dynamic where the, the banks and the shadow banks are sort of colluded together to come up with new creative ways to extend finance that it got kind of explicitly got, all, got, got around the, the, the efforts on Beijing to sort of rein in the expansion of credit, sort of turned into this sort of self-perpetuating machine of credit expansion, which has continued up to this day. But I, I would imagine that even as you started to look into this, some of the, the things that you uncovered probably even surprised you to the degree that they had developed, I mean, having been there for a variety of years. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of difficult to know where to start. Uh, I, I think the thing to this day that really surprises me the most, and I'm sure this is not entirely you know, new to your, to your listeners, but is, is the ghost cities. Um, there was yeah. one particular ghost city that I visited a number of times up in Liaoning province, which is in China's northeast. Um, and it was, to be honest, it is one of the most beautiful cities that I've ever visited in China. It was a fantastic landscaping with a man-made lake and, you know, a man-made rock garden on a man-made hill with beautiful canals running through, running through the city. But it was you know, once all the government buildings went up and block after block of housing and, you know, a tennis centre and, and office towers, it only attracted a fraction of the population that it was built for. And at the end of the day, it was really just a mechanism for stimulating economic growth when there was no real reason to build it in the first place if you were talking about, you know, migration or the needs of the actual people. And then you also have how how the, the Chinese government has kind of approached their citizenry obviously they've they've tried to to a degree i mean they realize that they're running into an issue where they have such a an older sector of their uh of their citizenry which is you know going to unfortunately die off in the next 20 years and that really hasn't been replaced to the level with the younger generations as well absolutely this this is so i mean the title of the book is is the great wall of debt but i kind of use that as an as an entry point to kind of look at this almost perfect storm of economic challenges that China is actually facing at the moment. So the, this demographic you know, crisis, I don't think really it's an extension. It's, it's too much of a, of a leap to call it a crisis that China is looking down the barrel of is, is, is very serious. So this is kind of the direct fallout of the one-child policy. Yeah. China is experiencing one of the fastest aging populations in the world, and we're already starting to see the effects of that. So I think it was in 2012, the working-aged population in China started to shrink. And over the next decade, that's going to shrink by tens of millions of people. Now, that's going to have a direct impact on, uh, on China's competitiveness. So we think, we've traditionally thought of China as a cheap place to manufacture things. But this shift in demographics is really taking a toll on that because as there are less people in the workforce, that's going to drive up wages without sort of any payoff or any sort of uh, comparable rise in, in productivity. So actually making things in China is going to get a lot more expensive. And at the same time, because all these people are, are sort of you know, becoming retirees, the, the financial burden on the governments is going to rise because they're going to be paying more in healthcare and they're going to be paying more in pensions. So it's, it doesn't paint uh, – it was actually China's financial minister, a, few, a finance minister a, a few years ago, he's not in the role anymore, said that this was one of the things that was his greatest concern about China's economic prospects, that, it will be, that the nation will become old before it becomes rich, and yeah. the sheer fact that it becomes old will actually make it so much more difficult to become rich. Uh, we're talking with Denny McMahon, who is the author of the book China's Great Wall of Debt. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't join us by phone, you can uh, give us a comment on Twitter, either at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111, or you can use my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. One of the interesting things we've seen in the last year or two has been the persona of President Xi uh, really stepping out and, and trying to sell China to the world. 
How much do you think he has played a role in this in this uh, this mounting wall of debt, or is it even beyond his his actual uh, level of uh, of import? Yeah, that's a really good question, Dan, and it's because, in, to a certain extent, President Xi inherited the dynamics of the economy. This is the economy was already you know rapidly accumulating debt before he he took over. Now, the problem he faced is that that's how China's economy grows. Was it, were it not for the accumulation of debt, China wouldn't be growing anywhere near as quickly as it is today. So he's been in this position that he wants fast growth, um, but he's certainly aware of the, of the risks in, in the financial system. Now, over the last five years that he's been in charge, he's certainly made certain efforts to rein things in. In particular, he's gone after the local governments. Yeah. You know, the local governments who've borrowed so much. Uh, but the thing is, the lo- so, uh, you know, he, he implemented a significant crackdown in 2005, trying to change the way that local governments borrowed money and to sort of prevent them for, from borrowing excessively. Um, and at the time, I know certainly us reporters thought, OK, this was it. He's finally managed to fix the problem. But what really happened is that the the local governments just came up with new creative ways to borrow that were a lot more difficult to track, but allowed them to continue rapidly accumulating debt. So much so that last year, she himself came out and said that he saw local government debt as being two of the greatest threats to financial stability. So he's had to deal with these issues. And I actually think that his single biggest uh, uh, sort of effort um, or, or, or measure of economic reform isn't actually explicitly economic. It's been this sort of political consolidation of power. So what we've seen over the last few years is that firstly, he's shifted a lot of the responsibilities of government into the hands of the party in the Communist Party. He's imposed a greater de- degree of discipline over the party. And then he's consolidated a lot of that the, the power over the party in his own hands. And this could actually be a positive, at least in the short term, for financial reform and economic reform, because he might now be in a position to you know, to tell the, you know, the, the, the lower levels of, of government, the local government officials and the state-owned firms that have borrowed so much money, these levels of government which have traditionally been able to stonewall reform and sort of selectively implement reforms, he might now be in a position to sort of smack heads, so to speak, and actually get stuff done. So it might be good for sort of cleaning up the excess of the system in the short term, but whether it's good for sort of, you know, Picking the making a, a more efficient, more creative economy in the long term, which is really what China needs at the moment, yeah. that is not a foregone conclusion by any stretch of the imagination. How do you think uh, entities outside of China should view what you're bringing forth in this book? Because obviously a lot of countries see China as that that next great uh, development uh, in terms of being the leader economically around the globe. We just had the the recent uh, signing, not that China was necessarily involved, but of that TPP-11, which obviously is going to impact a lot of countries in that region, yet you still have China viewed as this, this massively growing entity right now. Yeah. 
You know, China is very much shrouded in this aura of inevitability. I mean, if if the United States is the indispensable nation, then at this point, I think we can say China is seen as the inevitable nation, that it will inevitably become the world's biggest economy, that it will inevitably become the great power of Asia, that even inevitably it will challenge the United States as the role of, of the global power. But it is facing all these very fundamental economic problems as well. And its ability to sort of become this great power is very much built on its on its economic strength. So I don't know exactly what's going to happen to the Chinese economy, whether it will experience a, a, a crisis or a or, a, or even a recession, or to be honest, whether we're just going to see growth fall significantly to, to significantly slower pace of, excel, of, of expansion. Um, but even that, even if China's growth slows to 2 or 3%, then that basically radically changes the dynamic with which we see China at the moment. If China's economy grows at 2% a year, then effectively it is growing at the same pace of the United States, right. which means that it is not catching up with the US. And so all our sort of the way that we see the role uh, of China in the world, and in fact, the, the way that the Chinese their, their own ambition, the, the sort of the, the role in the world that they want to sort of assume, I mean, that would all be radically cut, uh, undercut, even if the economy slows to only 2 or 3%, which in the US would be pretty happy with. But for them, it completely changes the dynamic of what their future looks like. But how has, has China, in this level of growth, and, and whether or not you truly buy into the GDP growth numbers or not, how have other countries really benefited by even this the this level of growth that that we have seen from China, whether it be you know I, I know you've you've mentioned about places like Australia and New Zealand and and other locations around the world. Yeah, well, I, I think Australia has probably benefited from China's growth more than perhaps any other developed country, um, because firstly, all this construction work, all this invest, investment, you know, building stuff that the Chinese do, has meant that they've effectively been willing to buy anything that we dig out of the ground. So they'll take our iron ore, they'll take our coal to fire their, their uh, coal-fired power plants. But the mining boom in Australia, which was driven by China, that peaked in 2012. And now we talk about a farming boom because you've got this very fast expanding middle class in China and this affluent class which wants more seafood. They want to eat more beef and honey and wine and chocolate. And Australia has benefited hugely from all that. And at the same time, you know, we don't have the same sort of manufacturing sector that the United States does. But, you know, we've got a lot of clean agricultural produce and we've got beautiful beaches. So we attract a huge amount of of tourists from China every year and a whole lot of people who come and study at our universities. So that's kind of how places like, uh, you know, Australia have have massively benefited. Um, And certainly if we if we saw a slowdown in the Chinese economy, then I think we'd probably be we, we would be more affected than most places in the world. Because do you see a lot of countries wanting to kind of ride the wave of what is perceived to be this growth by China? Uh, I mean, you mentioned Australia. Uh, Canada signed a, a deal with, with China uh, the end of last year as well. You know, what it really comes down to is what drives your economy. So uh, Canada is very similar to Australia in that it has you know, a big part of its economy is natural resources. But then you've got places like the United States and Europe and Japan, which are a lot more driven by manufacturing. 
and they have a very different relationship with economic relationship with China. And so whereas the Chinese love to buy natural resources and they you know they have this great demand for services things like education and and and, uh, and and tourism but china exports three times as as much as it imports when it comes to manufactured goods pretty much most manufactured goods that china consumes are actually made in china right. and so this has made things difficult for for Europe and for the US and for Japan that you know rely heavily on on manufactured goods both for both for uh, you know to support the economy and for and for employment because China doesn't have a, a huge demand uh, to consume domestically what is manufactured overseas. Uh, Denny McMahon is the author of the book China's Great Wall of Debt, Shadow Banks, Ghost Cities, Massive Loans, and the End of the Chinese Miracle. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. So from the title of the book, uh, is the end of the Chinese Miracle potentially in sight in your mind? Well, it depends how, well, in my mind, the miracle's already over. And the reason I say that is what has been allowing the Chinese economy to grow so quickly over the last six, seven years has been that the accumulation of debt has been faster than than the economic growth itself. And that's not sustainable. And that's not a miracle. That's just alchemy. So the, the issue really is what happens next to the economy. Um, and I don't know exactly what will happen, but I think this, the way that we see China's growth as ascent as being inevitable. I, 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 firstly, I, don't, I think the reality is that it certainly might happen, that China will become the sort of the, the global power we assume it will. Right. But it's certainly not by any stretch of the imagination a foregone conclusion. Is there a concern that we need to worry about a, a, a global bubble at this point? You know, that's a tricky question to answer because to a certain extent, when it comes to sort of financial considerations, China's ring-fenced itself from the rest of the world. So, so often when a big economy somewhere in the world has a, has a, has a recession or even a crisis, you kind of get a, a flow-on effect to the financial systems of the United States and to Europe and, and elsewhere in the realm of the world. But you know, China doesn't have those same financial linkages as it does, to, uh, those same financial linkages to the rest of the world. But the big lesson that it took away from the Asian financial crisis back in the late 90s is that you know, it wants to keep a control of the capital account because it doesn't want foreign money to be able to enter the country quickly and leave the country quickly because then it exposes itself to all sorts of risks. Um, to the extent that a slowdown in China would affect the, the rest of the world, it's, it's through the real economy. So it's, it's through it's to the extent that China actually stops importing things like commodities or, start, or, or it, it sends its students overseas to, to study. I actually think perhaps the, the greater challenge that the world has to face uh, in the coming years is the approach China takes to actually warding off uh, these sorts of problems because the government knows that this economic model isn't sustainable. And so it already has a vision of like, okay, we need to develop new drivers of growth. And that vision is about moving into more technologically advanced industries. So to give you just a, a couple of examples, things like robotics, and semiconductors and electric vehicles. 
But those are the sorts of industries that developed economies see as important to their own economic uh, stability and prosperity in the future. And they already aren't taking particularly kindly to the idea of China using subsidies and protectionist methods and providing a whole lot of government funding for Chinese companies to go overseas and buy up the technology that they haven't been able to develop themselves. And that's not just, I mean, clearly that's an issue in the United United States, but you also see it in Europe. I mean, uh, last year, I think it was, the Germans blocked the acquisition of a high-tech German robotics company by the Chinese firm for exactly these reasons. Well, yeah, and then you had the the potential uh, deals that we've seen that that, that the, the U.S. government has really taken a close eye on as well, uh, and, and the concerns that they have there as well. Denny, it's a great book, and it's a great uh, look inside uh, what we uh, what we think has been going on for quite some time. Thank you very much for for coming on the show today. Not at all, Dan. It's been great talking with you. Thank you. Denny McMahon, the book is China's Great Wall of Debt. It is available in bookstores and online uh, for your purchase right now. It really is a very interesting look at, uh, at what has been going on in China for the last several years. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.